words from the hills, reconfigure your life, change your heart, and prepare you for all that God has destined you to be. Welcome to the Hills Church. Hello and good morning. It's lovely to be here, and it's, I, I think there's nowhere else in the world right now than I'd rather be than right here with you. It's a beautiful fellowship, beautiful church, beautiful congregation. Um, and I'm really, really happy to be here and see all these smiley faces. Um, so today I'll be talking a bit about my story, about my business story, about my spiritual journey. Um, and then I'll be sharing some of the key biblical figures that have inspired me professionally and have also taught me a few lessons which I've applied to business. Um, so I'll start by telling my story because I think it's important um, for people to realize. I wrote um, an article that was very popular on my medium and it's called um, How to Win in Life if Your Father is Not Femi or Tedola. And I wrote that because I felt like, you know, there's all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds um, in Nigeria um, and not all of them are from super wealthy families. So if you have that in your mind that you have to be from a super wealthy family, then somehow I think that belief holds us back. So I'll be telling you about my own story um, and then hopefully be able to craft um, and tell you about some of the lessons I learned as I was going on my entrepreneurial journey without that kind of background and then link it to some of the Bible characters that I think are really inspirational and can we can always bear in mind um, as we go through our own entrepreneurial journeys. Now, my definition of entrepreneurship is not just starting a business. It's also working in a business. Um, and... I think that's important because I think that you can serve in many ways. Um, so I'll also be talking, referring to executive life. Um, I am an entrepreneur, but I see an ED or a GM as, of a bank as my peer. They have a really big platform and they're also making impact in their own way. I see people working in government as my peer and I don't think anything is above the other. And I think I could even switch. I can serve in government. I can also serve in the private sector. So I don't think entrepreneurship is the only way that you can make impact. And I think that you need to be, when you're working in government, you need to be very entrepreneurial. You need to think like an entrepreneur. The, com the country today is starved of revenue. And in order to be able to be effective in a government role, you need to be innovative. Um, the same way if you're in an executive role, you're charged with making money and creating value for your company. Um, so many of the lessons I'm going to be sharing today um, are relatable, not only if you've started your own business, but also if you're in, in an entrepreneurial role in the public or private sector. Um, so a lot, I don't think I've ever shared this before, but I was um, born into a, a home. My dad was, was not a pastor at the time, but I was born into a home where my parents were quite young. Um, and they'd just come from Nigeria, they were still in school. So immediately um, when I was probably about two months or three months, um, I went into foster care. So I was seeing my parents sort of just on school holidays. Um, but my foster parents also were not educated. They didn't finish university either. Um, so I think a lot of people thought that that was a very bad start in life. I can remember going to see the um, school counsellor and saying that I wanted to become a doctor. And she started laughing. And she said that I should just choose something more realistic. 
Um, and I can remember when I started going to school, when I was about, um, when I got married, um, or when I was about to get married, I took my husband to be to see my foster parents in sort of the small town that I grew up. And before that, I used to be able to tease my husband. So whenever he makes a grammar error, I'd be like, you know, I was privileged to have a British education, so I can correct you. Um, you went to university in Canada, so maybe that's why you made that mistake. But I took him to my primary school. This town was so small, they didn't even have a secondary school. So primary one and two were in one class. So you stayed there for one, two years. Then three or four were in another class. Five and six were in another class. And I can remember, like, uh, I think it was four years ago, the Minister for Education was coming to my town. So that was a big deal. And the headmistress called me that the Minister of Education is coming and I said, you know, I can't come back. That place is like four hours from London driving. And it's, there's no motorway. It's an A road. So you get to a point. Like my husband was so surprised. You start seeing animals on the road. <laughs> so um, when she called, I was like, look, I live in Nigeria that I can't come. That please find somebody else. She's like, but we're looking for a successful graduate of the school. And I said, eh, there, there must be other people. <laughs> So I said, I can't come, that I actually live in Lagos, like I live in Africa. So a week later, she said that you must come, oh, the minister is coming. <laughs> they paid for my ticket and hotel <laughs> to come back to say that, okay, this is the student that we've produced. Um, so, yeah, that was growing up. But I think that one of the things that um, I realized growing up as well, particularly in that kind of foster home where neither of um, my foster parents were educated, was the importance of financial stability. I can remember, like, my earliest memory of thinking or being aware, there were two memories that I have of the importance of financial stability. Number one was when... Um, I was, I just asked my foster mom for biscuits. I said, I feel like eating rich tea. And she started crying. And I said, why are you crying? Like, all I asked for was rich tea. And she said that I'm so ashamed that we've not been able to have the cash to buy rich tea this week. And I was like, but why are you crying about that? It wasn't even that important to me. I just said I felt like eating it. And if you don't have it, like, I'll just eat the normal dinner. I just wanted it. But I can remember, like, her feeling very, very upset and ashamed about that. She was shaking, like, how can I not be able to give this child rich tea biscuits? But, like, I didn't understand what that meant. But that was my first exposure to financial stability. The second exposure I had was when somebody in my class asked me that, why is it when we don't want clothes that we, get, we bring them to your house and you wear our old clothes back to the same school. I remember two classrooms in one, <laughs> in one room. So you're wearing them for two years. So everybody, both year one or two or three or four, are seeing the same clothes. So Lucy was, who, um, Lucy was asking me that, why is it that we have to bring our old clothes? Why is it that your own parents cannot bring new clothes for you? That it's the clothes that we are finished wearing and we say, okay, mommy, we don't want. That's what they bring to your house. And I started realizing that there must be a difference between us. Um, and actually, when she asked me that question, um, I, I asked my foster mom and she said, okay, that I'm going to invite Lucy's mom to the house and you guys are going to sort of discuss that they shouldn't be making those comments in front of other people in the class. But weirdly enough, the way God works, over the years, because of that meeting that she called, 
when I was applying to medical school, it was Lucy's mom that gave me the connect, gave me the format to write the essay so I would get in. When I was starting my business, it was still that same Lucy's mom that offered to be on the board of my company. So it's so strange how God directs certain journeys because if that comment had not been made about what I was wearing, then I wouldn't have a mentor, a lifelong mentor in, in Lucy's mom. I don't even know Lucy anymore. But the mom and I speak every single week without fail. So it's, it's, and she sat on our board at Flying Doctors for three years. She was the only person, the only rich person I knew anyway. So of course she had to be on the board. Um, so that's the way sort of I started life in that small town. Um, and they used to call our house Mini Africa because actually when I started school, they had to call an assembly. They called an assembly specifically that this, like, because people were confused. You know, at that time, actually, there was no black celebrity. There was no Beyonce. There was no, this was in the 80s. So people did not know what was happening. They didn't know whether it was because I didn't bath. They didn't know whether, like, so they had to call an assembly just to announce that, okay, this is a person. And you guys, <laughs> you guys can't be rude to her because of her color. Like, you guys have to be polite to her. And when you see her say hello, because people were actually scared. Parents were also concerned. So um, it was a very, very interesting upbringing. And even when I got into medical school, because like it was a town. So to go out, they used to send buses to the town to take you to secondary school. The secondary school was actually far. So when I got into medical school and I was going to York, people were like, well, you're going so, so far. Like, this is like all the way to another town that we've never heard of. Most people, after secondary school, they're not going anywhere because it was actually quite a rural environment. They put me in the low, the lowest, the town is called Lowestoft. I was in the newspaper for a week. It was such an achievement. They put, they, they'll put your picture there that this is the person that got into medical school. So um, that was sort of the environment where I grew up. Um, not rural Nigeria, but you can see some similarities between rural Nigeria and rural England. Um, and even like, you know, growing up in that environment um, meant that obviously a lot of people, I, I call it kind of like a left behind area of England where, you know, you're so far away from London, um, you're so far away, like being far away from Lagos, you don't get the benefits. Even the healthcare is worse, everything is worse, and obviously the education is worse. Um, so that's sort of the way that I grew up. I was still seeing my parents, summer holidays, some weekends, I'll come to London. By that time, by the time I was sort of approaching nine, ten years old, they had uh, started their own church in London. So I used to do a lot of church work. In fact, there's no department that I've not worked, whether Sunday school, whether cleaning, whether making tea, all of the departments I worked because like I was like, I, and it was a deliverance ministry. So if you notice, I still don't wear earrings. <laughs> No trousers, no earrings, no TV, no Christmas. <laughs> Even this wedding ring, it makes me uncomfortable. Because the kind of place where, the kind of deliverance ministry it was, you can't wear any jewellery. Um, so that was sort of a bit about my background until um, I, I got into medical school, which was, which was an, a miracle in itself, um, really. And I could tell that whole story. Um, and, but one of the most interesting things was actually going into medical school. So everything is, I feel like everything is designed for the middle class. So one of the things that they say in the UK is that you have to have work experience 
before you go into medical school. So you've got to have worked in a hospital or something, volunteered somewhere, so you can talk about it in your interviews. But they never considered that people might not know any doctors. And I was one of those people that nobody knew any doctor, but there was a guy in my church who was a cleaner in a hospital. Oh, I, I, I'm going to tell you how I ended up in a psychiatric home for the criminally insane. I'm coming. So... <laughs> He was a cleaner in a psychiatric unit. So I had to go and convince him to go and tell his boss, like he has never looked in the eye before, that there's somebody in his church that wants to um, have work experience because she wants to apply for medical school. I don't know how God managed to do that for me, but somehow he was able to convince his boss to let me come to work with, with her. It was a female consultant. Um, so that's how I ended up in like one of the most secure psychiatric units in <laughs> in the UK. So we'd start the word round and I'd say, ah, what's wrong with this patient? They'll say, ah, this one killed his whole family. <laughs> how good to end up very dangerous people. But that was my work experience. And it actually gave me a lot of interesting things to say in my interview because obviously the rest of them, they're all from highly connected places. They went to decent places. Me, I had a completely different experience from my work experience. So everybody really liked my interviews because at least I had something, I had a really, really strange story to tell. <laughs> Um, so I got into medical school and my by um, but and I was working on the side. So I was selling um, boots in Timberland because obviously I had to pay my rent. I had to pay other things. So I was working in Timberland and I was selling boots, shoes as well, all the Timberland shoes. Um, and that was really my first business. Um, and in two thousand and three. I always say that I, I, that business was really helped by Jay-Z and Beyonce because they released a video where they were, sh where they were wearing those Timbaland boots. So all of a sudden, my business really, all my rents, all my uh, school fees, everything that I had to pay was like kind of buoyed by that video because when it came out, everybody was like, oh, you know, these boots are the things to wear. So I had customers in America, I had customers all over Europe. I just used my own store discount to buy the boots at a discount and I'd sell them on eBay. But even getting onto eBay was a very, very big problem because the guy that had the digital camera lived like 30 minutes from me. So I had to ride my bike one hour from the designer outlet, first of all, where I worked, get home, and then package all my merchandise and then start riding my bike to that guy's house to use his digital camera, upload on his computer, because I didn't have a computer. And then we're doing the business like that. So I was always in the post office. Throughout when I was in medical school, I used to be in the post office every morning because I was posting all my shoes to different uh, places around the world that I'd ordered from my eBay shop. And I can remember one Christmas where I was, it was evening, and obviously lots of discounts at Christmas. I used to work Christmas Day, I used to work New Year's Day because obviously I had so many bills to pay. Um, and I had got this way of tying my shoes, all of the shoes, onto the back of my bicycle. So it was bigger than the basket at the back of my bicycle. So I used to arrange everything. And on Christmas Day, I was driving around the roundabout, 
going home after my shift and I got knocked down by a lorry and all my merchandise just spilled across the roundabout and I was so sad. Like, I, I could have died, but I was so sad that, like, all the shoes were just everywhere and I had to, like, go and start packing them on the road and it was freezing, it was snowing and I just felt like, what kind of life is this? <laughs> Let me just drop out and get a real job. They had already actually offered me a management position at that in Bland. They said they'll take me to London and pay me some small money. I'm like, what am I doing here? Um, so that was one of my most depressing times in, like, my first business. Um, but anyway, I started thinking about Africa um, when my youngest sister was on holiday here. Her name was Busola, um, and she got very, very sick. Um, and we're trying to do a very simple medical transfer for her from the UK. My parents were there, obviously. My sister was there, and I was there. And I was trying to communicate with the hospital that she was um, and I realized that even some of the simple things that I, as a student, could have influenced, they just didn't seem to have the equipment, they didn't seem, and getting her to a better hospital seemed impossible, um, because she was too unstable to go by road. Um, so we managed to get, um, try and organize a plane from South Africa, but that whole process probably took about four days. Um, and by the time we had even, we weren't even through with the logistics um, by the time she died at 12 years old. Um, and that sort of, that experience for me made me realize that there was a huge disparity between what you could get so easily in the healthcare industry in England and what appeared to be I was, I was only in my second year of medical school, so I didn't really know anything, but I was asking for pretty basic things to be done. And somehow it was impossible for a consultant position of 30 years to be able to get those things done. Um, so that was a real turning point for me because I stopped thinking about a future in the UK and actually became obsessed with Nigeria. Um, I'd never lived here as an adult, before, but it just became something that I thought about daily. Um, and as soon as I finished medical school, I said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do something in Africa. I'm going to do something in Nigeria. Um, and as soon as I finished medical school, or even during medical school, I started writing my business plan that I have to do something in emergency services, that things cannot remain that way. Um, so... <clears throat> I moved to Nigeria um, a year, uh, a year uh, you have to finish your training, your residency training. So after I finished, I moved to Nigeria. Um, and my parents, I told you, they've been in the UK since we were like 1920s. So they weren't very helpful in terms of relationships or anything like that. But I had faith that if I could come here, if I could just be here, then I could start a business. And I think it's the same kind of faith that immigrants have when they land in Canada or they land in London. They believe that this is the place that they are going to be prosperous. I believe that this was the place that I was going to be prosperous. I can remember even opening up my first bank account. And it was on Sky Bank in Okwebi. Those were my first bankers. And I went into the branch. And they had to come and ask me after 30 minutes, what are you doing? I said, I'm just taking it in. Because I've never seen black people 
Roddy Bank before. So I had to first of all sit down and absorb that we had the intellectual capability without any supervision to be able to organize. I, of course, I knew intellectually, but not seen it live. The manager was also black and Nigerian. The owner, and they were moving around and everything was working without any help from anybody. It was amazing to me. So I said that this is the place. Everybody looks like me. I'm no longer, and maybe because of I grew up in that town where everybody was white and I was kind of oppressed and everybody could recognize me on the street from a distance, <laughs> that this must be the person. So I was used to every interaction being about my race. But coming to Nigeria, every interaction was just normal. And we were doing things I did not believe that I was, we were capable of. So to me, everything looks fantastical, that we are running a bank, we are running airlines, we are running all these things. It, 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 some, sometimes when you grow up in that kind of environment where you're taken away, you forget that these things are possible. So I thought that this place was fantastic. And I think that that's about mindset. Like, I just thought this is the place. So um, we, we started, I started in my uncle's house in a very small, um, using my savings just for my job. Um, and I'll talk about savings um, a bit later. But yeah, the basic savings that I took from my job from one year of work, obviously I had to live in one room because I knew I was going to move. So instead of like, when you become a doctor, a lot of people go out, buy a nice car, live in a nice apartment. I knew that sort of 90% of my income was going to go to the business. But still, it wasn't that much. So my first year in Nigeria was like super rough. Um, I had to take, I didn't have a car, so I had to take public transport everywhere. Um, I got robbed twice, once on the night bus from Lagos to Abuja and once um, from Lagos to Akure when I was trying to set up the business. Um, and this was when I was fresh from the UK, so I didn't know it wasn't safe to take night buses or anything like that. I just thought it was cheaper than the day bus. Um, so... Yeah, very, very difficult um, experiences setting up my business. Um, but then I got a big break when um, an old company needed an air ambulance service. Um, and, you know, I said that I can provide this service. Um, I knew because um, of uh, my work with the Nigerian Civil Aviation Authority, I knew somebody that had a plane. Obviously, I got the amount they would take to lease it for a year. I took it back to the oil company, and that was the beginning of my business. And from there, I was able to grow it. Um, now, we've worked in 47 out of 54 African countries, flown to 150 cities, um, and respond to 5,000 medical requests in Africa and the Middle East. Um, so up until Af Iraq, um, Iran, etc., cetera, we, we fly to and do medical evacuations um, in Africa and the Middle East. Um, so that was my entrepreneurial story, and the company is still growing. Um, I'm no longer on the management team because I sold some of my shares, um, but we're still growing as a company. Um, in 2016, um, or 2015, a friend came to me and asked me to invest in his fund. Um, so I thought that, you know, we have Forex. The arbitrage game that I was playing with treasury bills was no longer working, um, where I was trying to, like, get our income in dollars, change it to Naira, then uh, sort of uh, get into treasury bills at 18%. That one had crashed completely. So I really had nothing to do with the money. So I said, okay, let me try and diversify by investing in this fund. So I invested in Greentree. We raised the fund together from Nigerian high net worth individuals and institutions um, and closed in 2016. 
Um, and unfortunately, um, my partner had a medical emergency. He had to move back to the UK, a family emergency, and I was stuck with the fund. Now, I told this man that I don't want to do anything to do with finance. I'm a doctor. I'm an operator. I can offer business advice, but I'm not going to do anything with finance. But he said, look, are you going to return the money? And I had a very good support system. Mr. Bode Agusto was chairman, for instance. So I had a very good learning um, le learning environment, very good mentors. Um, so we continued running the funds, made some very good investments. First check-in um, in Flutterwave, first check-in in Paystack, um, even before they went on to uh, Y Combinator and achieved great success. So we're able to do a very good return um, on that fund. And I liked financial services so much. During that time, I also did a master's in finance um, and economics, kind of left medicine behind, um, raised the second fund that was solely focused on fintech and health tech because Obviously, like when you invest very early, you're like a non-executive founder. You're working with them every day. Um, so I got very well versed in fintech. So we decided to focus on fintech and health tech. Plus, my background academically is in financial services and medicine. So I did a second fund um, in the midst of or about to close our third fund now. Um, so fully into financial services. I think I left medicine um, quite <laughs> some time ago. Um, but coming from like a very, very small place um, and, you know, sort of through just God's grace, even when I see my parents, they're like, we had nothing to do with this. Honestly, like that's what they say to me, that this God, this is purely God, that if it's us, like we, we have no influence over this whatsoever, this outcome. Um, and uh, it, it's really a testament to, to God's grace and God's favor. So I'm going to go on to talk about um, four people in the Bible that have really sort of inspired me professionally and taught me a lot of lessons professionally as well. Um, and I think you can guess who the first one is. It's Luke, the physician. Um, and you can read about him <laughs> in Luke 1, 1 to 4. Um, some of the amazing things about Luke is, number one, he, he never actually met Jesus. It was actually after Jesus died that he became a Christian. So he never had any contact with Jesus whatsoever, physically. Um, and he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He was a disciple. He wasn't even one of the wider disciples. Like I said, he became a Christian after Jesus died. Um, but yet, when you look at his accounts, it's comparable to the people that were on ground there. Je uh, Mark met Jesus, but he was one of the wider disciples. He also wasn't an apostle. But Matthew and John were with him. But when you compare the story that Luke was able to tell simply by speaking to people, to the ones that were right there, some people might even say that Luke gave a better account. And how did Luke get that information? By going around and speaking to people, by doing his research, by being methodical, by using his intelligence, his training, in research, in reading, to go around and interview people, qualitative research. What did you see at this point in time? What did Jesus do at this point in time? You were there when he did this. Tell me more about it. And he was able to gather all that documentation and put it into a book that was as strong, or an account that was as strong as the people that were right there with him. 
And that teaches me about keeping good records. And whenever you're raising money, keeping good financial records is important. It teaches me about doing my research before every meeting and making sure that I not only know the person that I'm meeting, I know what, where they worked before. I know, if possible, know their family doctor. If possible, know their family, know members of their family, know their friends, know who they're connected to. So when I'm going there, I've done my research to the extent that I know their surroundings. I know people that have been linked to them. And one of the biggest lessons that I learned in business was I was fighting with this particular issue for about six years. Horrible business threatening issue. I went to everybody in this Lagos to solve this problem. And finally, I met somebody by chance. And I said, you know, that this is a problem, thinking that, what could he do? And he just made a phone call, and he solved the problem. After years. And he said that, what did you learn from this? I said, I don't know. He said that you must always do your research and know the person that can talk to somebody. So when I, I remember that lesson when I read the book of Luke and think about Luke and think about the fact that he was not there. He had no experience of being there, but he gave an account that was comparable to the people that were there. So research, understanding, meth being methodical, documenting are really, really important things that I've learned that have helped me in my professional journey and also, I think, you know, would, would be helpful to you. The second person, or the second group of people, are sort of my favorite ladies in the Bible, the daughters of Zelopahat. And these were a group of ladies um, when their father died. And you can read about them in Numbers 27, 1 to 8. Uh, their father died, and they were in a situation where the current law at the time didn't allow them to inherit property. That was the law. And there was no changing it, as most women would have thought at the time. The daughters of Zelofa had said no, that this was our father's property, and we must get it. This business, or these businesses, we must take it. So they went around and drew up a stakeholder management and influence plan of how they were going to do that. They met the elders. They met the senior people in the community. They met the leader, Moses, and faced him face to face that, look, this is what we want. And this went on for weeks until Moses actually had to go back and ask God that these women, they are causing trouble for me. They want to do this, but I don't think it's right. What do you think, God? And God said, please, give them that property. So that speaks to me as a woman, and I'm sure it speaks to anybody in this room that feels like there's a rule that they cannot achieve certain things, that you can put together an influence strategy. I think um, Professor Pfeffer at Stanford says that we, have more, we always have more power than we know. So through our networks, we can put together a stakeholder management strategy. We can put together an influence strategy that can, take, that can change the rules, that can change the rules of the game. Um, and that's how they influence, um, that's how the daughters of Zelofahad influenced me. I believe that I can shape situations. I believe that nothing is impossible. And if you look at politicians in this country, not all good, 
But one of the things that you notice about them is they believe that they can change any situation. If you speak to four people running for a position and you listen to their strategy, you would think that all of them are going to win you even because you walk away because they all have a root there and they believe wholeheartedly that that is the root. Till election day, they believe that that's the route that they're going to go. They believe that they can ch shape situations. And I think that when we are in our personal lives, um, we can learn a lot from them. Somebody says, always act as if you are running for president. Always know the people that you have to influence. Always, like, if you see a, if you see a politician, when they're with teachers, they will dress like a teacher, they'll wear school uniform, they'll go to the barbers, they'll go do all of these things that, you know, they'll eat pop-up by the side of the road. They try and make sure that they're influencing their audience, their stakeholders, the people that they need to make things happen for them. They're shaping a particular outcome, just like the daughters of Zelofahad did. It was impossible in the minds of most people for women to inherit property. In Nigeria today, it's still impossible in certain tribes for women to inherit property. But you can put on an influence campaign that allows you to shape a new reality. And it's not just an innate skill. You can actually learn how to influence. There's a great course on Coursera.com on influence, this same subject, about being able to shape your reality. And I think that that's something that really inspires me um, about these ladies. So Luke was predictable. I think the daughters of Zelofahad were also predictable. Um, and the next biblical character, I said there are four, so we're two down now. Um, is King Solomon, and you can read about him in 1 Kings 11 to 14. <sighs> Solomon is a complex case, actually, because he was given wisdom, and he became the wisest man that had ever lived. But when you look at what happened afterwards, you see that he ended up being cursed by God. So this man was a professional. He built infrastructure, more infrastructure than his father had built, there was no war. He didn't fight anybody. He used diplomacy to be able to make trade deals. He turned, he, like the, even the, um, the road identification system and the way that they were able to find people was quite incredible because I, I, I don't think, like, I always wonder that how did they find that Messifo um, best? They said they should bring him, and he was at the border. And they still knew that, okay, this is where this person is living. Even in today's Nigeria, it's difficult to find people if they don't want to be found, particularly if they're living by Niger, or by Zambisa, or by Chad, or by somewhere. But obviously, he put infrastructure in place. He had good economic policies. He had good trade policies. But somehow despite the professionalism with which he ran his government, he was driven by things that he wanted as opposed to things that he wanted to be done. And he ended up, you know, being the wisest man that ever lived, but still cursed by God. And that tells me that discipline is also important, even if you're a very clever person. It's better to even have mediocre intelligence and be very disciplined than to be very, to be very smart 
and not have the discipline and it focus, the focus it takes to execute and not follow what you want to do. So one of the things that um, billionaires like to say is follow your passion. I don't agree. The billionaire that is telling you that is making cement or importing PMS or doing steel or doing pasta or doing rice. Those are not the things that he's passionate about. I think he looked at the market. They look at the market. They said the market for cement is good. I'm not 100% sure that Angote is passionate about cement. But he looked at the market and made a rational, logical decision. He didn't blindly follow the things that he wanted or the things that he was passionate about. Maybe he's passionate. I don't know what he's passionate about. Maybe he's passionate about Arsenal Football Club. But he didn't say that, okay, I'm going to start a football academy or I'm going to start a football manufacturing company in Nigeria. Because sometimes the things that you're passionate about are just not good businesses and they're better off as hobbies. So there is an argument that you keep your passion for the weekends and do something that you can do well, or you find the mixture between something you can do well, something that the world needs, something that makes impact, and something that makes money. So discipline, focus, discernment are what King Solomon teaches me about. I've spoken about a king. I've spoken about a group of women. I've spoken about a doctor. Um, so the last um, person that I'm going to speak about is a public servant, Joseph. Joseph was a foreigner, first of all, and he became the most powerful man in Egypt. That's like a Nigerian going to Congo, or going to Tunisia, or even going to this same Egypt and becoming vice president or deputy chief, of, uh, deputy chief of staff. He became more trusted than any Egyptian. And it was because he had revelations from God. The same kind of thing that is happening now happens to Egypt, where they had a few years where they were growing, obviously GDP growth was high, they were growing economically, and then suddenly there was a downturn. And it was what they had saved during the years of boom that they were able to use to feed each other, or to feed their own citizens, but also to feed other countries because they were the wise ones. But Joseph was actually a really excellent public servant because he noticed that the budget of Egypt itself was going down. So what did he do? He instituted a tax of 20%. Corporate tax, anybody that is producing anything needs to use 20% or bring 20% to the government. So he was a policymaker. He introduced new innovative ideas to his government. And that was why a foreigner could become so powerful in a place that he was not even from. And in fact, the reason why I was, you know, I, I went to Egypt last year for a conference and the food there was amazing. Like their fresh produce was amazing. And I tweeted that day that I can kind of understand why despite the slavery in Egypt, when they got to the desert, they said, ah, we want to go back and eat the fresh produce in Egypt because <laughs> the food was so amazing. But the reason why the Israelites actually got there in the first place was because of poor economic management. They started coming to Egypt initially in the first few years of the uh, famine to get food. But then they had no food. They said, okay, take us. 
<laughs> we as human beings, we're going to serve you so we can actually survive. So Joseph also makes me think about Nigeria. It makes me think about the Nigerian economy. It, think, it makes me think, what are we doing with our surpluses? What are we doing with the revenue that we have? And how do we create the right policies, just like Joseph did, to not just make us a prosperous nation, but a nation that is an example of economic management and policy and governance to other people? What do we do to turn this around? So I've spoken about my own kind of funny backgrounds on my entrepreneurial journey. Um, and then I went on to talk about Luke, King Solomon, Joseph, and the daughters of Zelophehad, and how they've really inspired me, four characters in the Bible, four people that have really inspired me, and my entrepreneurial journey, and some of the things that I take um, from their stories. Um, and I hope it's been interesting for you to learn. It's been interesting for me um, to sort of speak about it. I've never shared this before. Um, so it's been, it's been a really, really great experience being able to share these thoughts for the first time. Um, and I'm looking forward to meeting with you in the breakout sessions and um, discussing more. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this message from the Hills Church. Our mission is to love people, connect with family, and touch the world. Learn more on our website at www.ecclesiahills.org or email us at hello at ecclesiahills.org. 